0: Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a very funny comedian and actor who you might remember from a great early episode of Hollywood Handbook. He's in our RoboCop remake. He hosts the UCB Tournament of Nerds and more. He's a longtime screen junkie and man about town. Please welcome Hal Rudnick. George, thanks for having me. Great to be here on this.
1: You were on the cusp of spooky season here. Uh, it's about that's to turn right. October. So uh, yeah, this really got me in the spirit. You you helped me <laughs> usher in my spooky season viewing. I like it.
0: Hell yeah. Well, that's that's the goal. We're, we're stoked to have you. And and yeah, it's right on the cusp of October. So this is really perfect uh, perfect entryway to it why don't you tell us a little bit about your just history with horror how it started for you and uh that kind of stuff
1: yeah absolutely so i feel like in my later life now i'm developing more of an appreciation for horror and just realizing there's so much nuance there's so much more social commentary humor uh just weirdness in horror mm-hmm. besides just the blood, the gore, the creatures, the killers. Those are all delightful. So there's so much to love about it because, you know, there there's commentary about the ills of the world. You know, you watch Freddy Krueger has more has more one-liners then uh, Mike Myers or Borat, you know, <laughs> like uh, F- Freddy Krueger is is like one of the funniest characters of all time, aside from the fact that he's a, you know, a murdering child <laughs> molester, uh, right, right. <laughs> that aside. Uh, but although you wouldn't know it, sorry for like the sidetrack, no. but the Jackie Earl Haley, uh, Freddy Krueger, Nightmare on Elm Street remake. Man, that was so dull and dry. Yeah. They Ugh. really sucked the fun out of Freddy Krueger. But that aside, I've I feel like later in life I've started to develop this appreciation for what you can do with horror movies, and that it is just a I don't know. It's such a many splendored genre, and <laughs> yeah. but and as a kid. I was very resistant. Like, you and I were talking before the podcast started, and I know I as a kid like I remember The Exorcist was frightening but then I just remember movies growing up like seeing the commercials and being like oh I don't want to watch that no way <laughs> but I, I've really started to develop a taste and appreciation for it and when I when I heard from you I'm like oh I thought it was a chance to maybe talk about a film that I feel doesn't get as much love as it should but yeah I, I and I will say this I, I've started to seek out horror more in my life as, as I get older, because it, it is such an escapist release. Like, you, you just kind of go along for this ride. It's it's fantastical. It's weird. It's larger than life. The blood, the gore. You know, I mean, some of it is off-putting. I've been watching lately the Dahmer series on Netflix, mm-hmm. and that kind of rides the line because it's like, okay, it's almost like murder porn when it gets to something yeah. like that. Or if you get to like some of the stuff in like some Eli Roth films, like Hostel, like gore porn or, or uh, wh- whatever, however you want to phrase it, like human centipede. You mentioned Screen Junkies. One of my worst, best horror experiences was we did a series of episodes on Screen Junkies where I would watch off-putting films with my mother I, and like uh, watching films that you would not want to watch with a right. parent. And I watched, uh, we watched two Fifty Shades of Grey movies, which was, yeah, a, a you know, it was it was a fun experience in that it was like very silly, but then it was also yeah. like, oh my God, there were definitely moments where I'm like, I don't want to be watching this with my mother. And then, but the first one we watched together was The Human Centipede, And that was pretty horrific. But also, there's, like, not exactly gore porn. There's something, like anticipation porn, yeah. like you're just waiting for something to happen. So Human Centipede was actually pretty boring until they like really got down to business.
0: <laughs> yeah, until the shoe drops. And then Human Centipede 2 takes that and goes, oh, you wanted you wanted an exploitation film all along? Okay, fine. Here you go.
1: Horrific. <laughs> horrific. Nightmarish. Yeah. So yeah, that's just a, a little bit. So I, I you know, I, I have an affinity and it's ever growing because, yeah, I'm just starting to realize just how glorious this genre can be
0: do you have a favorite sub-genre that helps you when you're seeking something out to be more into it are you like oh i love vampires or werewolves or i just need there to be a sprinkling of comedy in it or something
1: that's a that's a great question let me, let me think about that a, a, a,
0: a sub-genre well
1: you know i love the movie Alien and aliens. And alien oh, yeah. is often, you know, people debate, but that I think you can split it down the middle. It's a sci fi horror movie. Sure. The creature in alien. And then I love monsters. I've always loved monsters. When I was a little kid, we would go to the magic store, like, you know, c- kind of like the store that Pee Wee Herman goes to in <laughs> Pee Wee's Big Adventure, where he gets sure. like the trick gum and everything and the hand buzzer. <laughs> and th- at the magic store, they had all all of these glorious monster masks on the wall wow. and they were so cool. And I remember uh, I got one like as a, you know, as a, as a, as a gift, like my, cause my, you know, my parents knew how much I loved these, awful monster masks and it was a giant like it it was very much like a werewolf and like huge open jaw fur around the sides and i just remember throwing that on every halloween from like maybe like nine years old to like 12 years old (laughs) like wearing that monster mask hell yeah so i love monsters I love creatures. So, uh, and especially, so, like, Alien. You know, Jaws has, uh, you know, that could be considered, it's a summer blockbuster, it's an action movie, but it's also, that is a classic, so many classic horror tropes. in Hell yeah. Where that, and how the shark, Bruce the Shark, is treated. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I'd have to say, I, just my affinity for monsters really calls to me. And then yeah an action so and the the movie i picked it definitely has a lot of action oh yeah and it's absolutely a horror movie but it uh yeah it, it has some other tropes in it as well i think
0: Hell yeah! I'm a big believer in that genre is extremely flexible and things don't need to be one thing. So I totally agree. You know, alien sci-fi is just the optimistic version of, of like space horror, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yeah, there's there's comedy in this. There's western elements. There's action. There's horror. There's so much to today's movie. And so let's uh, let's get into it. The movie we're talking about today is The Devil's Rejects from 2005, directed and written. By Mr. Robert Zombie Yes Now, Rob Zombie, very controversial figure Mm -hmm. uh, Polarizing, some might say and he is a pretty unique figure in terms, even within his compatriots in the so-called splat pack, where he has a, a real distinct style and, and sort of group of people that he uses and everything. Do you find yourself liking Rob Zombie movies in general, or does this kind of escape the pack and, and become something that does stick with you? This is a
1: bit of an outlier, The Devil's Rejects, for me, but it does make me want to explore more Rob Zombie. Although I'm a little wary after seeing the trailer about the new Monsters movie that he made. I haven't <laughs> watched it yet.
0: Have you watched the new Monsters? I did. And, you know, I have to say that I actually did kind of enjoy it. You know, it hit a similar vibe for me as like Hubie Halloween. Yes. It was like very light, there's a coriness that they're embracing, and I was like, I can, I could get behind this.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like you know, my wife is, uh, is a little bit tepid, uh, a little timid going into horror movies, and uh, I think the Munsters might be a good one to uh, put yeah. on, like just kind of a light monster movie when we do a little pumpkin carving.
0: Yeah, the trailer did it no favors. <laughs> yeah, it was really, it's really. Uh, a, It's fighting from behind the eight ball, I think. Yeah, the trailer
1: trailer. made it look like the porn version of the (laughs) monsters. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's just it like that quality good, of acting, the performances are are a little better than that. Especially, there's a little bit of a Count Orlock character happening in there, and and that's a particularly good and fun performance.
1: Nice. Oh yeah, I know Daniel Roebuck played uh, Grandpa Munster. I w- I got to be yes. in a film with Daniel <laughs> Roebuck, who was also in uh, the the late late shift, whatever it was, uh, right? Uh, the film about Letterman and Leno, their controversies in the '90s, and then uh, he was also in a great like teen slasher movie, The River's Edge with Dennis I Hopper. I know that one. Uh, oh, The River's Edge Ooh. from the 80s is just... Uh, Love Hopper. It, so. It's it's like a psychological horror slash, like, just very dark teen coming-of-age story. Ooh. But uh, I got to be in this movie. Well, what was it called? Uh, the sp- It was something like The Cowboys and the Space Babes or Space Babes and the Monsters. <laughs> um it was a a seventy minute sixty five minute seventy minute um pseudo feature sure yeah, with daniel Roebuck and a couple other like b c movie wow. actors this is like in wow. the year two thousand
0: <laughs> well, hey it sounds like uh sounds like quite an experience, yeah, so in the late eighties robert cummings a k a rob zombie was working as a production designer on TV, but his band White Zombie was launched to fame after the music video for Thunder Kiss 65 was featured on Beavis and Butthead. White Zombie disbanded in 98, and Rob made a successful transition to solo work and film, delivering kind of the same style of trashy on-purpose schlock horror via music and film alike. He's probably most known for Dracula off of Hellbilly Deluxe, and uh, Hellbilly is also the term that a lot of people use to describe the characters in Uh, these movies, which I think fits. It fits. (laughs) Absolutely. And I've always appreciated Rob. I, I will admit that I tend not to like his movies that I've seen. I haven't seen them all but Monsters and this were like the first two that I really enjoyed. And this one in particular, obviously, I thought was much better than Monsters. But. <laughs> but even when I didn't love the movies, I've always really appreciated what Rob Zombie was doing, just in terms of like it's completely sincere feeling. Like he knows it's silly, and I know it's silly but we're all just having a good time goofing around, head-bobbing in the Dracula with dudes in, like, devil costumes. Yeah. L- let me
1: ask you this. Uh, are his Halloween remakes or his, ho- his Halloween reboots uh, worthwhile, or do you feel like he really missed the mark on those?
0: I don't personally like them. Mm-hmm. I-, I know that there are some defenders out there who who talk about sort of the – way that you know media capitalizes on true crime and everything and what it does like the ripple effects of of the the murder itself but part of what i love about the original halloween is that i genuinely enjoy spending time with laurie and and her friends and everything and by design the characters in his halloween movies are so Grotesquely unlikable. (laughs) Like they are all yelling and cursing at each other, and they hate each other. And there's not really anyone to latch onto in the same way, where you feel like, oh, I don't want them to get killed because I'm enjoying spending time with them. You know, maybe they merit a revisit. It's been a long time since I've seen them, but at last look, they weren't for me. Gotcha. Yeah, I I hear you. And now
1: I I feel like Halloween. You know, not to get too sidetracked, but it you know it came back with bringing Jamie Lee Curtis back and everything. And uh, yeah. I really enjoyed the first offering of the latest Halloween movies. The second one, I feel like it already overstayed its welcome. And now there's a third one coming out. Halloween <laughs> Ends. Yeah, Halloween Ends. <laughs> coming to Peacock. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I'm in a pretty similar boat. Although I will say that even though I thought Halloween Kills was bad, mm. I was like... I've seen not just worse slashers, but, like, worse in the Halloween franchise. Yeah, so it's true. Like- <laughs> it's true. It was just, like,
1: the whole commentary about mob mentality and yeah. everything. It was so heavy-handed. Evil
0: dies tonight. Yes. Ow. Man. <laughs> But Rob has also, in addition to the sort of sincerity and goofing around, though, he has also been insistent that art should make you feel something. So all of his pushing people to the edge and everything is very intentional. It's it's meant to elicit a reaction. Uh, I did think it was funny that the way he gained financing for House of a Thousand Corpses was by designing the Universal Halloween Horror Nights experience there. Oh, and they yeah. Were just like,
1: oh, why not? <laughs> That's pretty cool. I, I I I think I actually went to uh, Universal Hollywood Horror Nights and and went through his maze. It's it's pretty fun. And oh, uh, yeah, yeah. And you got and and I think you're like really putting your finger on, on something here that he he wants his movies to be evocative. He's got a love for the genre. The guy. Fucking changed his name to Rob Zombie. <laughs> he lives it. He breathes it. So there's there is an earnestness and a truth that's coming out of him. And I feel like th- this this film is th- 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 we're talking about today, Devil's Rejects, is the best manifestation. Yeah, distills it.
0: Yeah. Now the executives at Universal didn't really like what they got from House of a 1000 Corpses. It's very extremely violent, even though it is sort of tempered by cartoony exuberance. And so they were sure it would get an NC-17 rating no matter how they cut it, so they dropped it from the schedule. And it floated in limbo for a year until Lionsgate picked it up and it made 16 million at the box office. But the real way that it made money was Lionsgate, as one of the mini majors, was a studio that really took advantage of the DVD boom. They had a lot of movies that really found an audience on home video with special features in particular being an appeal, including other movies from the Splat Pack, including Eli Roth's Hostel and Darren Lynn Boosman's early Saw movies, but also House of a Thousand Corpses did well enough to justify a sequel in Lionsgate's eyes. And you kind of touched on this a little bit, but I do think that it would be interesting to talk a little bit about this era of film, because this is actually one of the first movies from this sort of quote-unquote gore porn, torture porn, whatever you want to call it. You know, we've talked about the original Saw, but that's pretty restrained compared to a lot of what came next. And there's a great quote from Sid Haig that I think primes things, where he says, quote, Our fantasies have got to be more extreme than our realities to maintain some sort of balance, and since the reality that we're living in today is so out there, the fantasies just naturally have to assume a larger role. And so in post 9-11 America, a lot of filmmakers were sort of reckoning with the nature of our fear and how that might lead us to set aside ethics, reflecting a world where American complicity in torture was pressing. You know, Dana Poland talks about how horror is not just among us, but rather part of us and caused by us. And a lot of these early 2000s movies in the torture porn environment put that on display. You know, they lean more into the cinema of attraction, spectacle and sensation over deep motivations, almost acknowledging the audience in a way. And one thing that I think is interesting that I do want to get your opinion on, just uh, narrative structure-wise, is that a lot of these movies tended to be episodic. Because the overarching idea would sort of inform the set pieces, which then informs the connective tissues. And a lot of people complain about this being like a, a huge issue for them. But for me, it kind of feels more like a musical, almost, in that it's just more of like a different narrative paradigm than a narratively focused movie. And so I'm curious if that's something that does tend to stick in your craw or if you don't mind something that is sort of based around the set pieces.
1: You know what? I mean, I don't mind it. Like when you put it that way, when you think of it in terms of like, oh, the same kind of structure or like the bones of a musical, it's, you know, it is like a, a carnival of blood. Yeah. And it's a genre, you know, how many Friday the 13ths, how many Halloweens, how many nightmare on Elm Streets? Like certain things have been done to death, uh, pun intended, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but you know, how are you going to how are you going to poke the audience? So I feel like, you know, Eli Roth's films, you know, they're manipulative, but they you can't deny that they reinvigorated a genre a little bit. Mm -hmm. The reality of like, oh, like these people in the Saw movies are chained to a wall and they have to do X, Y, or Z. Otherwise, like, um, you know, something even more gruesome is going to happen to them. Like these scenarios, they may be more like hyper realistic with the blood and the gore, but it's. I think it's how you make a ripple in this current environment. So, yeah, it's like a carnival of blood. So each piece, I think th- talking about the set pieces, I think Saw is the most evocative when it comes to that. Like that really right. resonates. Like each each trap, each puzzle becomes its own little game. And its own little set piece in the same way, like in a musical. Cue the next song. Cue oh, <laughs> boy meets girl, or let's sing about our small hometown, or whatever. It's right. like the same thing. It, it, so I absolutely, I think that's a great comparison, actually. And yeah, thinking about them, I, I feel like I'm warming to what they actually were because you know I, I compare it to comedy. Comedy tastes have changed and evolved because, you know, a lot of stuff has become problematic. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. I'm not going to, I'm not one of these guys who's like, oh, cancel (laughs) culture, get off my lawn. Right. You know, I think consequences are a good thing for problematic behavior. But I will say this, back in the day when people did a sketch about something that might've been taboo, or did jokes about something that that might've been taboo, not everything, but there was... There was sort of like this common knowledge where it's like, hey, we all know that this is wrong, okay? Mm. So let's joke about it. And I think in horror movies and with these gore blood fests, it's kind of the same thing. Listen, we all know this is <laughs> a dumb fantasy. Now so let's blow out the world. Let's right. take it to the nth degree and do it and do this stupid, clearly wrong. Despicable idea to (laughs) the hilt. Yeah. So, those, I think those films, there's some merit to them in that way.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting, especially because that's kind of what the initial detractors were bristling against. And I think that it's because it was such a a change in the way that things worked that, you know, the popular term for it is torture porn. It was coined by David Edelstein in an article that was lamenting their leaving grindhouses and becoming popular, basically. Mm -hmm. And in this article, he specifically charges the devil's rejects, among others like Wolf Creek and even parts of Reservoir Dogs, of being dehumanizing because... It destabilizes audience identification through the cinematic language, in that things like the ear cutting scene, the camera frames it like you're there and Uh you're part of it. And David felt that he was being unfairly made complicit in this action. And I think that there isn't a certain level of people being like, well, depiction has become endorsement in a way that i think these movies are pushing back against on and saying that we obviously we don't condone (laughs) like those the awful awful actions that the firefly family does but it's almost begging you to be more empathetic and be still able to relate to their joy despite not agreeing with what they're doing
1: yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty weird the fact that they turn this group that is akin to the Manson family and is also evocative of Texas chainsaw massacre and different killer clans of uh of past ho- of horror uh, days of yore that it turns them into almost anti-heroes like right. th- and that's one of the things i kind of like about the devil's rejects like these people are the worst of the worst <laughs> scum at the bottom of the toilet, the latrine of humanity. <laughs> like just filth, literally filthy, bad teeth, <laughs> dirt under their fingernails. Man, these people must stink to high heaven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, but they are, uh, there's something likable. There's something funny about them. So Definitely. it is almost disconcerting how they want us, how Rob Zombie wants us to feel about this group of people that are doing these heinous extreme acts. So you you know it's wrong, but there's something kind of cool about like, wow, I'm laughing at the bad guy. <laughs> right. I'm enjoying the bad guy. And then you have um, a great William Forsyth performance in here as the sheriff. And he's not clearly a good guy like he commits uh, like an extrajudicial murder in the freaking jail yeah and i think that's the interesting depiction of law enforcement especially now in this day and age but I i hear what you're saying about feeling almost complicit in this act it's like Wow, if I'm enjoying this, what does this say about me? And I'm not sure if Rob, did did Rob Zombie want to make these characters so enjoyable so the audience (laughs) would have to like come to this crossroads and be like, how do I feel about this? But there's something so delightful about Captain Spaulding. I love that, like the the clown makeup. (laughs) It's just so weird. Sid Haig, who is a a horror veteran, he plays this amazing, weird character that runs some kind of uh, like uh, like what what is it a a a play uh, like an adult playground that different from the one. (laughs) But come on down to, what was it, a used car lot? It was something.
0: You had the commercials going on. and Yeah, <laughs> where he wore
1: clown makeup. And he loved to just go around in clown make makeup. And I love just like this evil clown who mm. is disgusting, yet you kind of have a soft spot for because he makes you laugh. Right. It's really complicated, like the relationship with the Firefly f- family because they're, yeah, again, they're, they're detestable. But they've also got an exuberance.
0: Yeah, an yeah. exuberance and loads of <laughs> charisma. Definitely. It's it's also interesting because in a lot of these movies, it feels like people who rail against their very existence are, like, scared of their morals crumbling, and so they'd rather not examine them at all, which is, in fact, what movies like Last House on the Left and Saw are playing with, sort of the disruption of your own moral code through, like, equal punishment retributivism and asking, like, when is torture justified? Where is the line that allows you to shed your, your moral code and... and and go turn into them, basically. I think
1: we, uh, when is torture justified, we need to ask Dick Cheney about that, George. But, you know, I I joke, but the revelation that torture happened in Abu Ghraib and uh, in Guantanamo and all this, it similarly made us question our morals as a people. So right. it's like two completely separate things, but when you look at them like is the USA this great country capable of that? And what then the? look yeah, and then looking at horror, it's like wow, that's too real. Like when Freddy yeah. Krueger or Jason does it, okay, it's a quick death, it's mindless, but some of these other situations oh it's a little too much and like I mentioned the Dahmer miniseries earlier that that's like a freaking car wreck because you know it's it like it's the worst thing you want to look away but then it's so freaking compelling because like well, Evan Peters, who's playing Dahmer, is so great. And Ryan Murphy, it really manipulates you into like wanting to see what this most deranged human being is capable of. And it's like hard to turn away. And then it's yeah. like, oh, why am I after I got stopped w- watching after I shut it off? I'm like, oh, I feel dirty. I don't <laughs> like who I am having just seen that. But right.
0: why did I sit through it? There you go. Why? That's the question that these they they all force us to ask. And you know, it's interesting because you touched on this a little earlier, but there is sort of a naturalism to the torture that's integral to making the other elements like that question of when is it acceptable a success because suddenly if things are supernatural, that gets in the way of role reversals and understanding, like, intent and emotion and everything. And so the less real the depictions, the less real and less pressing the questions asked of the audience. You know, by really forcing you to confront the reality or what, you know, the, the looking reality of, of what's happening, that's how you have to examine the reaction, sort of. Otherwise, you can put up a barrier,
1: Hmm, and there is a realism to this. I th- and and it's not just the violence. There's also, uh, the, well, and this is also violent at times. But there's a perverse. Uh, there's a sexuality. Yeah, throughout the film. I mean, you have uh, with Sid Haig, who I met. We mentioned was like had like a storied horror career uh, prior to this film like in like his first scene he's it's a dream sequence where he's having sex with like a famous (laughs) porn star former girlfriend of Charlie Sheen Ginger Lynn Allen and um, like the the sex here the and the, uh, the the realism of the violence there's something having it all mixed together there's sort of like this throwback punk rock and you mentioned earlier grindhouse like like you mentioned that review where it said he takes it out of the grindhouse but i think this was this in so many ways this film is an homage to kind of the lawlessness of the 1970s like definitely yeah and that's one of the things that i love about it it's raw it's edgy it's unfiltered these bad guys are horrible and he's rubbing it in your face to root for these bad guys almost
0: definitely yeah i think that's exactly it you know so many of these movies do ask these questions of like when is torture permissible and everything and devil's rejects kind of rejects this and and it does just ask like it's like nobody here is good they say there's not really a line between them anymore you know Bill Forsyth says that Mm -hmm. and I think it's interesting how it just leans into the empathy of it instead of claiming a moral high ground or you know even something like hostile uh, Paxton the main character takes revenge at the very end and he does kill the Dutch businessman but rejects just we know that these are the torturers and it wants us to identify with them Rob said in 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 the behind the scenes documentary that he did the real goal you know is to make these shitty horrible people lovable and by removing the audience surrogate that's in house of a thousand corpses, we're left looking for someone to sympathize with. And the way that the police treat them and the natural glee that they have in charisma, you do kind of wind up landing on the Fireflies as anti-heroes, like you said. And on the one hand, it kind of becomes like a parody of utilitarianism where it's like the torture becomes acceptable as long as the discomfort of the one party creates an acceptable amount of joy for the other. <laughs> but it does like vindicate you because you are like, oh, I don't condone this. I feel uncomfortable. And that makes me Good, even though I am also enjoying the, the charisma that they're giving off.
1: Absolutely. And, it, you know, it, it's infectious. But then, like, sometimes something so heinous will happen that, you know, they're constantly reminding you.
0: Pull the rug out from
1: you. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> also, they're so cavalier about everything. Like, you know, we see Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and we, we, we look at him as... The most horrific visage of horror because he's wearing literally another person's fucking skin. He's gone full Ed Gein. Yeah. Full, uh, like, you know, before Hannibal Lecter put on that guard's face, there was leather face. But then, so cavalierly, what's his name? Um, Otis. Uh, Otis, Bill Mosley, puts on uh, some dude's <laughs> face that he cut off, just like, la di da. Look at this. Around. Yeah, he's goofing <laughs> around with it. It. like they, they are so crazy like he's le- they, they sleep with corpses it's so far beyond the pale and yeah. by design again it's like fuck you we're shoving this down <laughs> your throat you know th- there's this brothel in the film that's like just the weirdest sexual fantasy land, like it's Disney's California Adventure,
0: but for for sex workers. Charlie's Frontier Funland. Yes, <laughs> and you know you mentioned Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Obviously, Rob is pulling a ton from that movie. He is also pulling from some of the urban Oya movies, like Deliverance. Yeah, in terms of the clear class stratification, you know, there's country and southern rock, bric-a-brac decorating things that might inspire classist reactions even before they do anything wrong. And then Rob, well, he kind of switches this up and he does do this eliciting affection for them and contempt for the victims who get no redemption. And that's really where this becomes kind of a unique movie because normally these movies are sort of for audiences to fantasize about disempowerment where a quote normal and undeserving middle-class family is attacked but then ultimately regains their social power after having been like cleansed of their elitist corruption by their victimization and you know something like the hills have eyes i think falls perfectly into that but the zombie movies don't offer that redemption. Even in House of a Thousand Corpses, Otis is taunting people and screaming, maybe it ain't such a good idea to be prancing around where you don't belong. And Zombie is really, shifting the perspective to be like they are the intruders like the, these these middle class people who are coming to gawk and go to like uh, captain spaulding's tchotchke shop or yeah. whatever like they're the intruders and his sympathies lie with the lower class firefly family
1: yeah there, there is a bit of a you know stay off our land let us live how we want to <laughs> like you know if you look at it but it's it, it, it's also like or beware of coming in our land. Like, if you go looking for trouble, you'll find it. Definitely. <laughs> you know, play stupid games, win super prizes, fuck right. around and find out. Or whatever, like, phrase you want to apply to it. And then, the yeah, it makes sense. The, the soundtrack, by the way, that you mentioned, it's fantastic. Oh, yeah. And just as far as, like, layered with classic rock, layered with southern rock, especially... There's so much good filmmaking in this movie. It's it's really eye-catching and well done. And the opening sequence of the sheriff's raid and the end sequence. uh, I don't know if uh, we should avoid spoilers or anything, but the music really is is well done in this. Like he picks some plum songs from Mm -hmm. uh, from Skinner and Almond Brothers, and
0: it's really adds a layer. To the film no doubt it's really fantastic everything does feel like it fits perfectly and here's sort of where the like form defines function comes into play in that zombie himself Resists assimil- assimilation, sort of exaggerating stereotypes to get that cinematic freedom. Because your typical film goer might look at a grimy retro exploitation movie like this and say, "Oh dear, I could never lower myself to to watch one of these Robert Zombie films." Yes, but he still manages to carve out an audience. Not you know, there are plenty of suburbanites getting their like taboo desires fix through these radically independent people who are not concerned with social mores. And where where Rob's work in particular comes into play is that he brings a level of auteurism that didn't always come through in the early era pulp, that 70s grindhouse that you were talking about. And this is kind of reinforced metatextually by including all of these special features, including literally the making of documentary is longer than the movie itself. So they're really saying like, Rob is an artist. Everything in this is intentional and you should be taking it seriously, even if it is also fun.
1: Yeah, that makes so much sense. And that classism that you were talking about earlier and the pretentious uh, cineast or or, or patron of the arts would never lower themselves. And the art design in this film is fantastic. The dirt, the grime, and then the casting of just extras, like these faces, these truthful people who have lived, look like they've lived hard scrabble lives. These people Mm -hmm. that look like Oh fuck, Kid Rock! But Kid Rock <laughs> says not a fan of his politics. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, Music's but, not but, great
0: either. Yeah,
1: <laughs> 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 but but like he says, I'm straight out the trailer. He's he's from a wealthy family. That's where he grew up. Yeah. these people are. These people are like some of the people you just sit like you see sitting there drinking. It feels there's an authenticity and there's a visceral dirtiness to what's going on and it rubs it in your face it's like you don't want to know these people and if you did you wouldn't like it
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah and this market and the appetite for special features were both really enabled by the dvd market this kind of came out at the exact right time i thought it was really interesting that sociologists had predicted that American culture's sort of class fluidity or at least aspirational class fluidity would result in like the quote unquote culturally disadvantaged being able to access high culture. But what they actually found happening was that the literati embraced more trashy entertainment. And so it was more of a downward trend than an upward trend, uh, as far as what they expected. And I
1: love trash. Trash can be art, you know. I'm a oh, huge, yeah. I'm a huge fan. And spiritually, I think this connects with uh, this Rob Zombie film. I'm a huge fan of 1970s John Waters. Oh yeah, Female Trouble is incredible. Female Trouble, Pink Flamingos, but it really it went for it, mm-hmm. and it took ideas like. Uh, family values and puritanism and certain mores and say, you know what, fuck what you know. This right. is this is real life. Like th- you got to laugh at everything, you got to laugh at yourself, you got to dissect it and you got to, you know, you got to live. I mean, divine, the drag queen amazing actor who was the lead in so many John Waters films. I mean, talk about an anti-hero Di- like divine Eat
0: shit kill people yes right?
1: yeah oh there's a great like that great quote yes <laughs> and it's so anti-establishment and it's it's facetious it's over the top but at the end of the day it's a call for freedom because john waters uh, you know he is a gay man um, divine also this is a group of counter-cultural People who do not have some of the everyday freedoms that the puritanical family values crew tries to, you know, enforce. And uh, yeah, yeah, there's an ethic here that these films are different, but at the same time, there's a beauty to, to to this to this gore and
0: horror and dirt definitely so. Let's talk about the cast and crew real quick. You did mention Sid Haig as Captain Spaulding. He's incredible. The rest of our main trio are rounded out by Rob's wife, Sherry Moon Zombie as Baby Firefly, and Bill Moseley as Otis Firefly. Like you said, just charisma out the ass from this trio. It's it's hard to imagine this working as well without these three holding it down.
1: Yeah, Bill Moseley,
0: like... Incredible, he, truly incredible. In
1: yeah, it. just like... He literally gets fucking crucified in this movie, or um, stigmata through yeah. uh, a chair. <laughs> and, he, and he goes around looking like Charles Manson by way of Jesus Christ. Yeah, oh my God. When he's all odin with the hair covering up the yes. side of his face and everything. Oh man, <laughs> dude, dude looks sick as hell. <laughs> and and then Sid Haig, we talked about the clown makeup. There is something just so twisted about this fucking sex clown. <laughs> His teeth are all jacked up. Oh, terrible. Dude needs a floss. And Sherry Sherry Moon Zombies great and and I just think about like the sense of humor that this movie has, like throwing in that scene where they're in the where they're in the van on the run and uh. th- and they and they want ice cream. There's just the most adorable, tootie fucking fruity. <laughs> and then there's there's little moments of humor throughout this movie when the Groucho Marx film critic expert comes in.
0: Oh my God.
1: Was that, that might have been Dan Roebuck. Yeah, it was Dan Roebuck.
0: It's incredible.
1: Morris Green. Oh, it's so good. And like hitting some more folks on the cast, William Forsyth, who I feel like he's done so much good stuff in his career. Priscilla Barnes, who uh, was on Three's Company back in the day. Danny Trejo, Diamond Dallas Page, the comedian incredible, Brian incredible. Posehn, <laughs> who's a huge heavy metal dude. So you probably knew Rob Zombie from that. Yeah.
0: Just several horror legends as well. You know, Rob has never been shy about declaring his love for the giants whose shoulders he's standing on. You know, you have a ton of people. PJ Souls is in this. Michael Berryman, Ken Foray, all of these horror icons who... Mm-hmm. who are given fun characters. They don't feel like they're just slotted in to be like, look at look at who we got. They all feel like they got something to do. Absolutely.
1: And then that is an homage to the ones who came before him and then even more of an homage besides the presence of these people, besides the grindhouse 70s vibe of the film, they're literally watching Bella Lugosi, Dracula <laughs> in the hotel room. This film is a love letter to the horror genre.
0: Philip Parmet did the cinematography. It's great. He also shot the incredible Harlan County, USA. And his documentary experience is exactly what Rob wanted. Someone who could get in there with a handheld and make it feel real. To that end, the editing done by Glenn Garland is more restrained than House of a Thousand Corpses without the clips of older movies and 16mm footage of the Firefly Clan ranting, intruding on the movie, although we do still get some fun little home video stuff at the very end. And they filmed in 30 exhausting days with a budget of around seven million, then released on July twenty second, two thousand and five to twenty-one million with almost half a million DVD sales in the aftermath. So certainly a success. And it even found an unlikely champion in old Raj Ebert who gave it three stars and said, Here is a gaudy vomitorium of a movie, <laughs> violent, nauseating, and a really a pretty good example of its genre. If you're a hardened horror movie fan capable of appreciating skill and wit in the service of the deliberately disgusting, the Devil's Rejects may exercise a certain strange charm. I love that. He's right. (laughs) Absolutely. The rest of the review is actually pretty funny, too, so I recommend that people check it out, especially the end where he's like, I accurately described this movie, so I don't want to get any emails from people who said it was gross. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's get into the actual movie they start off with forensic photos in the aftermath to remind us of their crimes in a thousand corpses and a chainsaw massacre style text intro that says on May 18th, 1978, Sheriff John Quincy Wydell, along with the local authorities in Ruggsville County, led a search and destroy mission on a decaying farmhouse. Inside the house, police discovered a collection of diaries and scrapbooks detailing the accounts of more than 75 murders. The family responsible for these brutal crimes was forever to be known as the Devil's Rejects. And, Again, you know, like we said, he's not shy about hitting these homages. It's so Texas Chainsaw off the bat that you're like, I am in the right mindset now. Mm-hmm. I understand that this is going to be like Texas Chainsaw, but actually show all of the implied violence yeah. that's in, in that one. <laughs> True.
1: And this house, like, you can't stress it enough. Ooh, looks Just like a for sure. The, the filth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The filth and disrepair. The detritus. Just nightmarish, right out of the gate.
0: That's right. Uh, Let's do what God made us to do, says the sheriff. And I did think it was interesting how quickly the human moments in the shootout that ensue, like Mother Firefly weeping about baby looking like an angel when she was born, do help to balance against the dispassionate violence and almost immediately sets them up as the underdogs, despite the fact that we just saw Otis canoodling a cadaver.
1: Mhm. Yeah, and I feel like you don't quite realize until a little bit later that oh, this is a dead person in his right. bed.
0: Yeah, it, all of a sudden it zooms in on the lips and you see that they're like a little blue and you're like, yeah. oh, shit. Right. <laughs> the shootout, I think, also looks really good. They shot in one day, which is kind of shocking because of how many different angles it's shot from. And then the switch to the surreal slow-mo when the tear gas gets launched, uh, it's just a, a fun shootout to start.
1: Totally, totally. And that's what, like, I, I thought it was really apt at the top Of the show today, George, when you mentioned that there were elements of the Western in this. Yeah, very Rio bravo. The landscape, the way certain characters like William Forsyth and others carry themselves, absolutely. And the shootouts, for sure.
0: Yeah. And the homemade body armor is fun, and they take a few cops with them, but they can only stand for so long, so RJ uh, Firefly lays down his life, and the cops take Mama into custody while Baby and Otis run out the basement passage through the jail that they kept their prisoners in, and Midnight Rider plays as the title card and opening credits roll.
1: Yeah, and that's just, it's just fucking badass. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, y'all. It's just badass.
0: (laughs) You can't deny it. They trick this woman into stopping and kill her for her car. RIP to Good Samaritan Abbey.
1: Yup. Oh, man. They are ruthless.
0: They really are. And the still frame of the car driving off with the corpse lying in the road as written and directed by Rob Zombie appears, and then it all fades to black. It just looks so good. It really captures the movie, the sort of verisimilitude that it's capturing in that photo. Just great. Just really great stuff. A news report details their crimes as cops dig through the scene and find some photos of their father, who the sheriff recognizes Captain Spaulding the Clown, and we do get that fun intro where he has this sex dream that turns into murder. They do a good job of not tipping you off that it's a dream, and mm-hmm. then he wakes up, and his girlfriend is like, oh, was it a bad dream? And he goes, oh, 50-50. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Funny, dirty, kind of, you know... Uh uh, you know, a little perverse. I mean, I feel like, you know, this uh, This film, I don't know, I, I was thinking about it afterwards. I was wondering, like, is there like a level of misogyny in this film? Maybe a little, it might be like for, you know, it was made in 2005. But then again, it's like, no, these motherfuckers want to kill everyone. They want to disembowel everyone. They want to cut people's faces off there. So yeah, it's more, less misogyny and more misanthropy. <laughs>
0: I also do love, you know, uh, Rob uses the Kuleshov effect here to great effect for a joke when Captain Spaulding is like, I got to piss. And then suddenly you're looking at a thick brown stream and you're like, cripes, <laughs> until you realize it's coffee. Yep. Yep. Really good stuff. Again, just like people think that there's no filmmaking in this and that it's just trash, but like there are really good edits and lighting and yes. everything. It's a real uh, a filmmaker's film for sure. Yep. Agreed. His commercial is interrupted by a special bulletin about the shootout when the sheriff swears to hunt them down, and then he gets a call from Baby, who warns him about the encroaching storm, so they agree to meet at the Kahiki Motel, just like they always planned. There's a funny billboard there that says, on the run again, there's always time for a quick bite at Elliot Steiner, but then also Rob said on the commentary that the reason they built this is because otherwise you'd see the set for the motel just behind them. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> It worked. Sure did. This is when we're introduced to Ken Ferre as Charlie and Michael Berryman as Cleavon at Charlie's Frontier Funtown Brothel. Uh, very funny conversation here about the prostitute Candy needing a new angle, but he's hesitant about it being Star Wars because the last thing he needs is horny robots running around tripping over shit. And then Michael yes. Berryman goes, they call them droids.
1: <laughs> oh, and uh, Candy is, I met. We, we were talking about a little bit about, uh, uh tim burton i think where, where are we talking about do we mention uh burton or peewee's big adventure yeah peewee did come yeah p- uh peewee but uh yeah candy was uh dotty was dotty from peewee's big adventure i was thrilled to see that peewee's big adventure one of my faves really amazing movie
0: captain spaulding calls to let them know he's on his way over and meanwhile at the kahiki palms The band Banjo and Sullivan are checking in, comprised of Wendy and Adam Banjo, uh, Roy and Gloria Sullivan, and Rhodey Jimmy, who, like you said, is played by Brian Posehn. I was reading up on these characters, and hilariously, their hit song was, Lord, Don't Let Me Die in a Cheap Motel.
1: (laughs) Oh, how prophetic. (laughs) One of the members of the band is Jeffrey Lewis, who recently passed away, the father of Juliet Lewis.
0: Oh, shit. I didn't even realize that. Yeah,
1: and he's um, a recognizable character actor. Uh, He's got quite an IMDb.
0: Oh, yeah, he's really great. And Roy Sullivan goes to the ice machine when he's approached by Baby, and he tries to impress her with his stories of shaking hands with Johnny Cash. And she says, I love famous people. They're so much better than the real thing. And this is kind of the first taste of one of the themes. It is first of all a very funny line. Yeah. <laughs> but then also plays into this idea that does crop up, which is this like myth making. The idea of becoming larger than life and, and and the legacy that you leave behind, where because there's no line, we'll see that time and again that Despite the fact that they're becoming infamous rather than famous, they are becoming myths in, in sort of the grand tradition of the American West and the outlaw and everything. Mm-hmm. That the anti-hero aspect of it is is raising them into legend.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then one one more thing about the actor uh, Jeffrey Lewis. Just I'm just looking at his IMDb right now. Dude has 227 credits. Just yeah. Yeah, goes way back. It, my, my man was on Barnaby Jones back in the 70s. <laughs> Every Which Way But Loose, The Mission Impossible TV show, Gunsmoke, Cannon, Mod Squad. Wow. <laughs> he was doing
0: it. Yeah. <laughs> she aggressively comes on to him as a distraction for Otis, who sneaks up behind him with a gun. And they've really got the old rope a dope down to a science between the waitress and this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it does also look great, though. You know, there's these close-ups as he's getting, like, sucked into the conversation. The, the cinematographer, like, gets up in her face and everything. And Otis takes them back to the room where they're all made hostage. And it does play with the Dark League comic when Brian Posehn is quickly shot in the head and everyone screams except Adam who immediately pukes. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Spaulding's gas is dry, so he rolls into Buck's grab-and-go, where PJ Souls from Halloween uh, is Susan, a woman that he knocks right the fuck out for her car, <laughs> traumatizing her son and driving away with a cackle. <laughs> oh, he's so good. He really is. And the Fireflies decide to torture the band, and Bill Moseley has been really having fun with the taunting. It has been hard not to be having fun with him, and so in this moment where they pull the rug out from under you and it becomes super real as he rapes Gloria. And there's this awful ambient tone, you know, we've had the fun, warm Southern rock and everything and it becomes this awful tone and it's a grim, grim scene. And as we spend time away from the alternatively terrible group of cops, you do sort of, like you said, like you spend time with these people and it starts out fun But quickly you realize, like, oh, I don't really want to spend time with them.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, like a bait and switch, a constant bait and switch, because it's like, oh, man, these people are the embodiment of the id. They are this, like, you know, they just want to have fun in their own weird way. But then yeah, you're reminded, like, oh, this is brutal and horrific and despicable.
0: Yeah. And Bill Mosley was really having trouble with this scene. He said that the level of cruelty required for it was, like, frightening, and it really bummed him out, was the quote he said. (laughs) So Rob took him aside, and he said just four words to him. He said, art is not safe. And this, he said, inspired him, and the people on the crew were, like, crying, watching the monitors at how intense and real the scene felt. But in the commentary, Zombie said that that was the goal, is to really make it feel real, And that he almost wished that he had made the entire movie take place just in the room. Wow. Too much, Rob. Too much. Too much.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad you didn't do that, uh, Rob Zombie. If you're listening. I I love a bottle
0: episode as much as the next guy, but the road trip is the whole thing.
1: Right? Listen, the Breaking Bad uh, fly episode was great, (laughs) but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad they got out of the motel.
0: He stops abruptly saying that they make him sick and that the boys have an errand to run, so out they go. Meanwhile, Sheriff Wydell is interrogating Mother Flyer, Mother. I cannot say Firefly tonight. <laughs> interrogating Mother Firefly, which turns to assault after she taunts him about his brother's death, and it becomes pretty clear that she's the like ultimate victor of this encounter. The sixteen millimeter film and the handheld style really look great here as as things become more intense. Mm-hmm. Fooled around and fell in love. Plays on the radio as they drive past the abandoned chicken coop and the fact that roy likes it disgusts sodas who thought he was a real cowboy type <laughs> and uh, again this idea of being sort of like true to yourself as well sort of uh, uh, crops up the idea of not having to care about what's holding these guys back who he has to put on a cowboy hat to sell records or whatever they are unabashedly themselves to the dismay of everybody else <laughs> absolutely They follow this yellow brick road, which is just a bunch of yellow stuff, which I thought was really funny. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I didn't really think about that. Yeah, there's some great taunting and everything. But Adam gets the drop on Otis after he gets carried away, threatening Roy. And there's this fun, fun little scrap there where he eventually gets both of the men back on their backs. Adam bleeding out from a gunshot wound to the neck, uh, plus a gut stab. And Roy gets beat to hell. And this is one of the scenes that we had alluded to earlier where Otis is, like, railing against God and and Adam being a hero. And the hair is, like, covering half of his face. And he gets really serious, more serious than we've seen him up to this point. And he says, I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. And it turns out that the devil's work, besides fiddle competitions, is killing the hell out of these guys. Yep.
1: It just showed you the brutality and the enjoyment that they took from it. And, you know, this is the ride we're signing up for with the Devil's Rejects. The, the, like, right. That is these guys' MO. Like, they're so charismatic but some, that sometimes you momentarily forget that they're complete socio-psychopaths without a shred of a moral compass.
0: Exactly. Back at the motel, Baby trades Wendy slapping the crap out of Gloria for letting her go to the bathroom. I mentioned the lighting before. This is all filmed indoors, but it really looks like sun coming through those windows. They did an amazing job with the lighting in this. Oh, yeah. Uh, The motel set in particular really looks fantastic. And Wendy obviously immediately starts screaming out the window for help. (laughs) Why wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. And when Baby is distracted, Gloria grabs the gun and threatens her. But she doesn't just pull the trigger immediately, so Baby does this underhanded, literally and figuratively, knife throw right into her damn heart. Oh, yeah.
1: Man. Rip. That that was uh, wicked sweet knife throw. (laughs) Also, I would like to see, George, that scene made me think about every time in a movie, either a, a horror movie or an action movie, or what have you, where one character's got the drop on someone else with a gun, and then it's like goodbye, click, the gun's not loaded. Like just uh. that, like I've <laughs> I've got you dead to rights now, click, gun's not ro- loaded. Uh, yeah. Like I feel like I've seen that one. That's uh, that's a that's an oldie but a goodie, an oldie but a goodie.
0: Oh yeah, it's super satisfying, especially because like, baby offers her ass up, literally her ass to get shot, and. And it does click and there's nothing in there. And so it's this brutal twist. Like, I mean, like you said, we've seen it before, but it's just so effective to be like, there wasn't really a chance for them to get back at them. But also, like, it was all just like mental power game for otis and everything like roy had a knife so they were i guess like equally matched in terms of weaponry and everything but yeah it's it makes you like re-examine everything that we saw up to that point and your your heart just drops totally wendy makes a break for it but much like sally running to the cook for help in chainsaw she runs right into the dang clown's arms who promptly headbutts her into unconsciousness Ooh,
1: wow yeah that was that was a rough one
0: Captain Spaulding's connection to the Marx Brothers film Animal Crackers is nailed by one of the cops who sends for the town's movie critic, and you mentioned it before, this amazing, bizarre, funny scene, this Gene Shalit-looking guy rolls in. in what a throwback. Oh my god, I happen to be a self-proclaimed Marx Brothers expert, if I say so myself. (laughs) And they get into this argument about men of myth groucho and elvis presley and fuck groucho it's a very funny line but obviously these figures looming large are meant to draw a parallel to the firefly clan you know now at this point they've been on the news constantly they've been given the nickname the devil's rejects they're talking about how it's the worst crime in american history good or bad their name will live on
1: yeah absolutely and just i don't know it adds such a delightful uh whimsical layer to the film that <laughs> these characters are all that they all have these names that are derivative or from uh the marx brothers yes and what was the oh wolf um wolf j flywheel wolf j flywheel man so good <laughs> yeah i love it
0: absolutely Otis bursts into the motel room and he scares Baby and Captain Spaulding because they don't recognize him on account of he's made a mask out of Adam's face. (laughs) It's really grim. The two men have a little power clash, but that gets put on hold so that they can get out of there. But not before Otis Chainsaw Massacre 2's Wendy putting the mask on her just like Leatherface did to Stretch. Oh, man.
1: Yeah. Wendy, I mean, she survived up until that point, but she was not having a good
0: time. Yeah, <laughs> I also will say that that scene in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is like one of the most disturbing scenes I've ever seen Like that's another movie where there's a lot of humor to it and everything mm-hmm. But it really takes a turn in that moment where you realize what's happening And, and yeah. she has to just like stay there quietly pretending to be a corpse under the, her friend's face Ugh. It's fucked up It's a really yeah. great, great scene but the maid comes by to clean the next morning. It's not a great sight in the bathroom. The corpses are piled in the shower, and there's writing and blood on the walls, including a hard one to see in the mirror that Rob said is supposed to say, fuck Wydell. <laughs> I was, like, trying to figure out what it said for a oh. pretty long time.
1: <laughs> I missed that one. Uh, yeah, they, that room, that, that maid, they, they left that room a real mess for her and they didn't even leave a tip.
0: Ugh unbelievable <laughs> that would have been really funny if they just like looked and there was just like a pile of money on the, yeah. t- on the bed or just
1: like a five dollar uh, like a five dollar <laughs> bill uh, um next to the lamp
0: <laughs> yeah the worst part though is that wendy is hanging on the door and when the maid tries to leave wendy falls on her begging for help through her gag then chases the maid in a parody of the conclusion of the first chainsaw massacre mm. she runs into the road and promptly gets splattered by a truck oh. it's even like comic framing like it's a flat wide shot and even as grotesque as it is you're like those duke boys did it again
1: (laughs) yeah and it's it really reinforces like you touched on it earlier that the victims did not get their revenge their redemption no quite the opposite the victims are roadkill yeah you know the, vic- yeah. the victims just one after another Just get obliterated here
0: And Wydell comes to investigate And he's joined by Danny Trejo and Diamond Dallas Page Himself as some bounty hunters Rondo and Billy Ray Snipper Who are on the trail of the list of Groucho characters
1: Or as uh, as William Forsythe's uh, deputy calls him Got a couple of shit kickers over there
0: <laughs> He's fun, I like the deputies he's, So do I into, With yeah. his
1: ski jump nose
0: <laughs> He's got his his thick, uh, thick yeah, sideburns and everything yep. Yeah, that's good The Fireflies are driving to Charlie's for safety And they see this sign for ice cream in 10 miles Which, like you said, Baby wants to stop for uh, Otis and her squabble And the captain gets involved And you gotta laugh as they chant Tootie fucking fruity at Otis And the this is a pivotal moment for Rob He says that this arguing, arguing in the car on a road trip that's something we've all done it's relatable for audiences and it's another human moment for them it's meant to make you forget the fact that this comes so quickly on the heels of watching all of the horrific shit that they just did to wendy and the band and everything and then it hasn't affected them in the slightest and so we like put it out of our mind we go well i'm not thinking about that anymore because she stuck a little ice cream on his nose and that's fun
1: (laughs) oh the fireflies are cute (laughs)
0: <laughs> the sheriff dreams of returning to the compound where he's haunted by the ghost of george who tells him to kill them tom towels plays george he was otis and henry portrait of a serial killer you could really say that the supporting cast in this is a murderer's row ah i see what i see what you did there i like it <laughs> he's really great in this too though and this sort of switching back and forth between like sad sap and like angry villain ghost is convincing him to uh to kill is intense He's awoken by a call from the bounty hunters, though, who track down a connection to Wolf J. Flywheel, the Groucho character from the big store, and he goes by the name Charlie Altamont now. The shit is on, they say. <laughs> <laughs> but the sheriff has been convinced by the ghost of George to become the very thing he was hunting, so he heads down to the jail cell and he stabs the crap out of Mama Firefly, yep. who dies how she lived, making weird sex noises and tongue gyrations. <laughs>
1: It's true. For a second there, I was like, wait, is that Faye Dunaway? There was a very (laughs) Faye Dunaway look to Mama Firefly. She
0: did. Yeah, she really did. It was Leslie Easterbrook, and she actually originally auditioned for Gloria Sullivan. And then they were like, no, you should be Mother Firefly instead. So how about that? The remaining Firefly fam makes it Charlie's Frontier Funland. We've talked a little bit about the name, but it does kind of harken back to a time where things were quote unquote simpler and more brutal. And this kind of sums it up. You know, you could be a rascal on the frontier and who could say no? There were brothels, there was drugs, there was violence, and, and this is sort of all brought into one place in this set. Uh, Charlie also, he walks out and he holds them at shotgun point to the Fireflies' surprise until he shoots at the captain and it's a water gun. And again, you're just like, ah, we're laughing. It's pranks for the Fireflies. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Charlie also reveals that he's the brother of the captain.
1: Yeah. J- just, a, just a couple of brothers messing around. <laughs>
0: Time to party, baby. The neons come out, so does the drugs and booze. And it's so funny to contrast this with the sheriff sitting there grimly practicing his speech and chanting "Lord, I am your arm of justice." Uh-huh. And you're like, "Well, I kind of like if it, these are the options, I guess I'm going to hang out with the fireflies." Yeah, that's <laughs> the
1: thing. Like they're the worst people to ever grace this earth, but they're fun to hang with. That's like right. man,
0: it's also amazing for there to still be people for them to look down on as they go to buy some chickens for Captain Spaulding's famous fried chicken. <laughs> <laughs> And they're stopped by the sheriff who traps Charlie's hand in the door and threatens him to have the Devil's Rejects present and accounted for at midnight. The bounty hunters sneak in. They murder some of the sex workers, then hold the fireflies at gunpoint while they wait for the sheriff. There's no dialogue in the mix, which is really cool. There's lots of slow-mo. It's a fun scene. Captain Spaulding's just, like, smoking a J out there.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Although, the the one thing I'll say, Charlie Altamont did not have... Uh, you know, he did not show any uh, like uh, I think requisite like sadness or sympathy for his ladies being killed. That was that was a little weird
0: to me. That was weird. Yeah, he he was just like cost of doing business kind of thing. Yeah, which, uh, was was come on, man. I guess he didn't have a ton of ton of choice, but he didn't look that upset either.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I guess when you're friends with the Fireflies, you know anything mm. is possible.
0: People don't die. Get
1: too, don't get too attached. <laughs> yeah.
0: Sheriff Wydell executes his I've been looking for you clown (laughs) that he'd been practicing Mm -hmm. and then shoots him in the leg while DDP kicks the crap out of Otis. Uh, They're packed in the trucks. And again, it's just music in the mix as the sheriff cackles and drives them like a madman to the compound. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, I got to thank you all for helping me to understand what my heritage is as he ties them up. The Wydells have always been vigilante justice. Now, my granddaddy, he rode with the likes of Tom Horn, killing scum like you for a living. We've always been devil slayers. And Tom Horn was a Pinkerton and a hired gun who was very quick on the trigger and famously felt no guilt and was eventually hanged for murder. So. Oh, wow. Uh, he's clearly like identifying with these people who he's like oh i'm saying that they're good but famously the pinkertons were insanely violent
1: oh yeah they were just um jackboots for uh, corporate and government right right uh, right. yeah probably beating up poor and underprivileged people
0: right do you want to identify with these people and so it's again just you're like ah oh, man like the line is so fine and and it takes so little to almost make it non-existent so mhm And he invokes God to justify violence. He claims to have tried to walk the line of conventional justice, uh, but he says, we're here. We're playing on a level that most will never see. And Zombie on the commentary suggests that this does sum up the film. He says, good and evil don't matter anymore. So there you go. And civilization's supposed superiority and the moral authority of the state quickly give way to what was supposedly the amorality exclusive to the Fireflies because he starts torturing them right back. He's beating them with liquor bottles he's stapling photos of the victims to their chests he's cattle prodding them and he finally shows baby photos of her dead mother which is the first thing that kind of breaks through their their shell here and and this is when he also nails otis to the chair while reciting some bible verse and then sets the house on fire and truly you're like all of the shit that we've seen them doing like this feels As bad as what we've seen them do, even though you're like, maybe he has some quote unquote motivation and that he's looking for revenge for his brother who they did kill. And he has the authority of the state behind him. You're like, this is not a good person.
1: Absolutely. I feel it. And that, you know, I mean, that's a theme that that really resonates and that shows that, that, you know, oh, maybe... For this one instance in this movie, rooting for this horrific family, it, it might be the lesser. Uh, well, I don't know about that, but William Forsythe, yeah, he's complicit, <laughs> like he, you know, and and it calls in the bigger picture, you know, that and that that's something that resonates to today as far as
0: extrajudicial killings and right. and justice far from being served, right. Exactly, and and he he promises baby something special, and he even releases her, and he, and he chases her with his axe through some very vocal cows. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but when she dips into a little shack, she finds Charlie, who did come for them, uh, but he gets axed in the chest by Wydell, who's right behind them. You know, mm-hmm. it, again, no redemption. He tries to do the right thing, immediately gets killed for it. <laughs> Yep. And also, is that the right thing? Because uh, he's trying to help this murderous psychopath.
1: Yeah, the moral compass is out the window. Exactly at, at this point, <laughs> there no no one is right. But you can, you know, it's kind of like Succession. They're all bad people, but uh, can't help but watch them. They're, I mean, exactly. The, and someone's yeah.
0: got you got to cheer for someone in a conflict. Yep. <laughs> there it is. He shoots her in the leg and he starts whipping her with a leather strap. And just like Otis said earlier, they all say fuck you and baby does too, which I thought was funny. So Widell goes for the kill, choking her out, until he's freaking neck snapped by Tiny from the beginning, who's still doing just fine, and we all just assumed he got killed, but he hid. Yeah, we didn't
1: uh we, we didn't see we, we only saw him in the uh, beginning and then he disappeared for three quarters of the movie. And there he was. (laughs) He's back. And this guy, I forget his... Oh, McGrory. Right. He's the actual, you know, kind of a tragic story. The film is dedicated to him. He's the seven foot nine actor who had size 26 feet. And, uh, you know, he, he just... You know obviously had a growth hormone imbalance or something kind of a tragic story his personal life but g- great in the in the film and he, he was also in uh, he's a tim burton uh, veteran of uh, uh
0: That's right. he's in big fish, fish i believe big fish yeah yeah he he unfortunately died in 2005 so yeah the uh oh, in the credits this is dedicated to him so nice shout out he is he is good in this and he sends him for otis and the captain and he does get them out and you get this nice family reunion where everyone is hurt but alive these Teflon hellbillies. <laughs> yes. Bloodied, but not down. And they drive away, promising to come back for Tiny, but he walks sadly back to the house. He knows it's over, Rob says, and so he kills himself in this exploding house. Tragic. <laughs> he yeah. was there just to, to save him, and then, and then said, well, they're never coming back.
1: <laughs> I, I, Tiny could have, you know, there, there was so much he could have done.
0: Rob was like, "Eh, they probably would have arrested him, and he didn't want to do that. (laughs) You know what? Yeah,
1: Tiny's logic is is his own.
0: It's morning, and Freebird is playing over these soaring camera sweeps. Rob said they used every second of their helicopter rental footage. (laughs) And we get some inner cut footage of them in Happier Times, just being a family. And again, this idea of legacy at any cost comes up. In the song, If I Leave Here Tomorrow, Would You Still Remember Me?, You're like, who is that normal family? It could just be anybody. But because now this car is full of the devil's rejects, they're somebodies. Mm Mm-hmm. And they're all bleeding in their seats when Otis spots a police checkpoint ahead just waiting to blow them away. So he feels the wind in his hair, he smiles and he wakes the gang. And they all pull out their own guns and go down fighting. And this is how he gets it, you know. You have to respect their defiance to the end. Yep. And it's great seeing the bullet holes appear even though it's like the music and then it cuts and the music drops out and you just hear the gunfire as it freeze frames. It's really fantastic. I love this quote from Rob where he says, it just sort of sums up the whole thing because in the end, these are bad people, but they're played out like Bonnie and Clyde. They are typical American Western outlaws. It's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He's not only sympathetic to his trashy characters, but does elevate them to myth in the way that they meet their end. It's a perfect ending to this movie. I just think it's great.
1: Yeah. um, They went out on their own motherfucking terms. A la, you know, just like you were saying, Butch and Sundance, Bonnie and Clyde. Let's add Thelma and Louise to that. Hell yeah. Yeah. And the slow-mo to that sequence, that is some great action sequence directing and camera work. Man, I was just probably, you know, there's so much... There's so much memorable stuff. There's so much to like. There's so much idiosyncratic stuff in this film. But that the opening gun battle and the end gun battle, damn good. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Good filmmaking.
0: Absolutely. And now, Hal, we've reached the part of the episode where we sum up why it's not just a good horror movie, but is in fact the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start. It's the best horror movie ever made because Rob
1: Zombie knows what came before him, acknowledges it, and celebrates it. This is a party. This is a party of the horror genre. And he takes it to the hilt. And he doesn't do it on a 7 or an eight. He floors it. He floors it as he heads towards that checkpoint and he goes out in a blaze of glory. It's a fantastic celebration of so many things that are great and impactful about the horror genre.
0: I totally agree. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it almost functions as like an art manifesto from Rob I think in that there is a, a almost autobiographical nature not to the actions that are happening but to the ethos behind it the idea of casting these ideas of what's acceptable to the wind and doing what makes you feel good and and embracing the grindhouse and and viscera and everything and saying i don't want this to be accessible to every single person. That this is for for me and my like-minded compatriots and the people who deserve to find it will find it. There is brilliant filmmaking in it. You know, we talked about it that people they they see the aesthetic of it and they say this can't have any artistic merit and even beyond the messaging in it, it you know, maybe maybe we read too much into, you know, the classism stuff or whatever people might sure. say. But Even if you say that, the actual filmmaking techniques in this movie are fantastic. There are so many great edits and great ways that things are lit. You know, so often the exteriors of the motel and maintaining the exact energy like weeks later to film things inside the room and everything that's hard. That's really hard. And this is a cast of actors who are really bringing it to a movie that needs a hundred percent it's very demanding roles and and they really kill it it's also you know pretty refreshing to get a lot of older actors there's like a lot of older people in this and yeah it just kind of makes it stand out i i really like that about
1: it and you know what? There's a lot of horror that's you know, that fits, you know, different categories. There's young adult horror, like, you know, the the Fear Street movies on Netflix. There's monsters. This horror is just a throwback and it fucking goes hard. Hell you know? Yes. Yeah, and it doesn't care, you know like so many horror movies have like an antiseptic version of murder or of killing. Nope. Nope. This is in your face. It curb stomps the audience (laughs) with visuals. And for that unrelenting filmmaking and like just delivery system of sick, Fucking visuals, one after another. Oh yeah, you know y- you gotta respect what it's set out to do. This movie, uh, I, th- I feel like, accomplished didn't just accomplish what it set out to do. It's way better than it had any right to be. Because <laughs> how do the laughs and the delightful whimsical moments coexist with the with the sheer brutality that is deft? filmmaking as you said just one more example that you can have all this stuff coexist: the homages the sexuality the 70s aesthetic and uh, the humor the extreme violence it's it's just a beautiful gumbo
0: i couldn't have said it better myself hal i want to thank you so much for coming on the show this was an absolute blast please plug time tell the people where they can find you check you out on social all that jazz
1: Thanks so much, George. So you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Hal Rudnick, H-A-L-R-U-D-N-I-C-K. If you're on Twitch at all, I do a daily live stream Monday through Friday from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Pacific time at twitch.tv slash Hal Rudnick. And I talk about streaming, streaming news and what's new and do some reviews with my pal Lon Harris from Screen Junkies. And we do that on our show Binge Boys. Our podcast, Binge Boys, wherever fine podcasts are streamed.
0: Hell yeah, I absolutely recommend it all. Hal is a very, very funny guy. Lon is very funny as well, and uh, I I mean... You guys know your stuff. There's no no putting that in a box, so definitely check it out. As
1: do you, George. This was, an, <laughs> uh, this <laughs> was a
0: this was a straight-up pleasure. Thank you, my friend. Oh, absolutely my pleasure as well. Uh, as far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. That username applies pretty much everywhere. Instagram, Letterboxd, the Patreon. If you're really enjoying the show, you can get all kinds of fun bonus episodes and stuff over there. We've talked about video games like Resident Evil 2 and PT. We've talked about about things that maybe don't necessarily fit directly in best horror movie ever made like begotten but still definitely merits discussion we talked with branson reese about the 13 best animated horror shorts from 1929 to 1953 so truly anything and everything can be found over on the patreon uh, it's a lot of fun some great discussions check that out for just a couple bucks a month and if you really don't want to spend any money you could at least rate and review, folks. <laughs> so, so do all that stuff. That's it. Thanks again, Hal. Bye.